one page skipped turned into six pages. <clears throat> and uh, part one of two of part four. So uh, whatever that means, means we're going another week at least. I'd like to say we'll definitely only go, won't go one more week, but I just know myself too much to make that promise. My, my full intention is to conclude this next week. And then wonderfully, as we get into Colossians, it's going to come back up, which is just great. So we get like a part six uh, in different aspects of Colossians. We'll reply this to that text. Anyway, uh, Leanne and I like nearly all the same foods with one significant point of disagreement, which is olives. She loves olives. I do not like olives. She thinks that I ought to like olives, but my taste buds disagree. But she still loves me, so she doesn't cook with olives. Uh, when we eat the salad at Olive Garden, though, I give her all of the olives that end up on my plate, and we're both happy. Because honestly, not all differences matter, but some do. Some opinions are strongly held to, and others aren't. I feel strongly that you should read a book before you watch any movie version of it. Uh, and we generally re require our kids to follow that rule. Uh, many of you follow different guidelines, and I think that you're wrong. But when it comes to opinions, when it comes to opinions, we know, generally speaking, that these differences aren't sinful. It's not a sin to watch the lesser movie version first. Not a sin. But not all differences, opinions, convictions, and beliefs can be so easily passed over as insignificant. Because what about when the differences matter to us? Perhaps they matter very deeply. Toppings on a pizza? Who cares? Right? I mean, not like you don't have a taste preference, but if you think somebody else's pizza topping choices are sinful, you have a serious problem. I mean, your conscience is, I mean, strung to the breaking point, and we need to, we need to have some counseling. Gluten-filled or gluten-free? Perhaps important to your stomach, but not at all important to your soul. Eating or not eating gluten is not sinful. Not all differences matter. What about restaurants on Sundays? What about sports on Sundays, playing or watching? Masks or no masks? <laughs> vaccines or no vaccines? What about questions about Bible translations? Worship styles in churches? Drinking alcohol in moderation? Modesty standards? Movie or TV show standards? Music standards? What about a supporting or boycotting certain businesses like Starbucks, Apple, Disney, Burger King, etc.? What about holiday traditions? Which I'm not going to mention specifically what I'm thinking about, lest I ruin someone's fun in a few months. What about political affiliations? Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, none of the above? What about women working at home, women working from home, or women working outside of the home? What about married couples and children? How quick and how many? What about schooling choices? Public school, private school, private Christian school, or public school or homeschool? My guess is that at least one of those topics, maybe more than one, gets you a little riled up. 
Now, some of the differences between those things matter deeply to you because you have strongly felt opinions, convictions even, about which side is correct. It would be a very interesting experiment, one that I've considered doing, <laughs> to have all of us take a survey on these and other issues. I have no doubt that the results of such a survey would reveal a wide range of opinions held by the members just of our small church. Why is this? Why would there be such a difference of opinion about things that we feel sometimes very strongly convicted of? Because even as Christians who are saved by faith in the same Lord Jesus Christ, who are filled with and led by the same Holy Spirit, and who read the same Bible, we each have a different conscience. We each have an entirely unique personal consciousness or awareness of what we believe is right and wrong. This inner voice is a gift from God, but it is not the voice of God. The voice, a voice from God, not the voice of God. Our consciences are not perfect. None of them. Not a single one of us. No human being apart from Jesus ever had conscience that aligned perfectly with the moral will of God. Our consciences are not permanent. They're not fixed and concrete. They must be trained, questioned, and adjusted according to God's word as we are led by God's spirit and as we live as part of Christ's body, the church. Do you hear all three of those things? Word, not by yourself, but with the spirit, and not just you and the spirit by yourself, but in a body. That's the will of God for us questioning, training, adjusting our consciences, adding rules that should be there but aren't, removing rules that are there and shouldn't be. Our consciences are personal. None of them align exactly with anyone else's conscience. Even a married couple gets along well, has conscience issues that differ. The conscience question I want to start answering today is this. How should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? How should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? I have four points to help walk through this. We're only going to cover one of them today. You're welcome for not going through with it last week. <laughs> Uh, just whew, lots, so much, so much to say. Relating to fellow Christians, how do we relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? I think that there are these four points that can help us get through this. Uh, most of them drawn from Romans 14. We're going to be there a little bit this week, more next week. But here's, here are the four. First, by understanding our different consciences. Second, by trusting the consciences of other believers. Third, by deferring to the consciences of weaker believers. And then fourth, by learning to charitably disagree with other believers or believers with differing consciences. But since all of us have different consciences, we can just say other believers. These are the four points. We're just going to spend our time this morning mostly on understanding our different consciences. Understanding our different consciences or understanding our differences. Why is it that Christians with the same Savior led by the same Spirit reading the same Bible can end up with consciences that differ on so many things. And in order to understand this, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to understand this, we need to be able to distinguish between the commands and principles in Scripture 
and our applications of those commands and principles. Commands and principles in Scripture, our applications of those principles. For example, adultery, immorality, lustful, impure thoughts even, they are all sin. The biblical response, according to 1 Corinthians 6.18, one of many passages we could go to, Paul says this, and thus the Holy Spirit says this, thus God says this, flee from sexual immorality. There's really no question of that. Right? There's not, it's not a conscience issue. It's a command clearly taught in Scripture. Every follower of Christ must obey it. But how do we live this command out? Right? What are the applications of that command or principle that we find in Scripture? I would say that the application of this command changes constantly, year by year, person by person, culture by culture, generation by generation. The application of this command in the first century, for many first century, first century believers, it meant stay away from the idol temples up on the hill where immorality was part of idolatrous worship, right? Cult prostitution was part of that worship service. So just stay away from that hill, right? Think across the entire state of West Virginia. Is there an idol, like an actual idol temple, right? Don't like, well, these things are like this. No, is there an actual temple to Diana with hired cult prostitutes that are part of worship services? The answer to that is no. So just like stay away from the hill in Ephesus. Oh, great. I've never even been to Ephesus, let alone the hill, let alone the ruins of that temple where there are no prostitutes anymore, right? So the application for the first century believers is different than it's going to be for us. It's not really relevant in that way. Well, previous generations in America sought to apply this command by avoiding movie theaters. Maybe that was helpful. Maybe it was. But it's certainly not sufficient when the movies came to our home TVs via cable or satellite. So don't have cable, don't have satellite. Well, now you have streaming services sometimes that they're just built into the TV. So get rid of all TVs. Don't stop listening, right? This is just an illustration. So get rid of all TVs. But what about computers? What about tablets? What about smartphones? Found recently there are ways I didn't even know to access aspects on my, my, my smartwatch. Pornography used to be printed in magazines, but not anymore. And it isn't limited to specific websites. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anyone. And maybe someone, maybe, maybe one of you, is enslaved to this. And you decide, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality, you decide no more screens in your life. No smartphone, no internet access. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your smartphone offends you, causes you to sin, throw it away. That is a great application if it helps you to obey the command to flee from sexual immorality. But is that application necessary for all believers? No. Do you see? Flee from sexual immorality? Absolutely yes. But if I can't see that there's a difference between flee from sexual immorality and throw away my smartphone, I have a conscience problem. Maybe throw away your smartphone, but not definitely. That is an application, not a command according to Scripture. But not all applications of this command are open to interpretation to like, to like this one is, like that specific example. While trying to remain discreet, behavior that is appropriate, God-honoring, blessed, and 
pleasing to God between a married husband and wife are sinfully inappropriate between any two people who are not husband and wife. And there are so many iterations of that. That is not a conscience issue. That is an instance of clear sin, but there is a difference between those things. It's not like, well, is it okay to look at pornography? No. But in order to not look at pornography, I'm going to do this, and therefore everyone else must also, right? There is a difference between those different things. To give another example of understanding dif differences, I read this is an example of the, like, the logical workings of conscience. This, my brain like this, hopefully it works with your brain too. There, there's God's truth, stealing is wrong. Really no question, right? I kind of used this already as an illustration earlier. So God's truth says, and this is the command, this is the principle, stealing is wrong. Then my conscience takes the knowledge of that, which I think is actually one of those things, the, the law of God written on my heart, in the heart of other people, that that which belongs rightfully to me should not be taken from me. So I have an application of that truth, which says this, taking from my neighbor's garden would be stealing. And therefore, the verdict that comes about in my conscience, this is my conscience's application, and then my conscience is a verdict, taking from my neighbor's garden would be wrong. Do you see? I mean, if you're familiar with logic, this is a syllogism. If you don't know what that word means, just forget I said it. God's truth, stealing is wrong. Taking from my neighbor's garden is stealing. Taking from my neighbor's garden is wrong. And in that application, my conscience says that that application is valid, then that verdict is something that I must live by. I must follow my conscience. But as we talked about in different cultures, including the cultures of the Old and New Testaments, that application would not have applied to them. Because Jesus <laughs> commended, praised his disciples because he's Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of everything. They took wheat from a field and he didn't say, what are you stealing for? Why? Because they weren't stealing because their culture had informed their consciences that this was not an application that was necessary. Therefore, for them, taking from their neighbor's garden was not wrong because it was not stealing. Do you see the difference between God's truth, command, principle, versus applications, and our consciences pronounce verdicts based off of our application of some principles, many of which come in our hearts from the law of God, and all of which we should be saying, is it really what the Bible says? Whenever you hear in your head or feel in your heart the verdict, it would be very valuable for you to trace that backwards. Wrong. Why? Why is it wrong? Right? Don't do it. Because to do what you think is wrong is you sinning. That was last week. But what is, is this, what is the application? The application of what principle, right? Does you work your way backwards and be like, and is that a valid biblical principle? Is there actually a command of scripture? And is this a valid application of that? A valid and necessary application for me or for anyone else? We have to have applications. This isn't a matter of like, only live by commands principles, don't have applications. It's not what I'm saying at all. Matter of fact, that's impossible. We have to have applications, but we must not codify them, chisel them in stone tablets for ourselves or for others. To do so, for me to say, like, I want to flee from sexual immorality, so we're not going to have internet and I'm not going to have a smartphone. Again, be like, I can, I can easily trace a line for that, and if that's you, I'm not saying you're wrong. 
If that's you seeking to flee from sexual morality, praise God. I am thrilled that you are seeking to take those things seriously. But for you to then say, all Christians must throw away their smartphones in order to flee from sexual morality, you're binding the conscience of another believer according to an application that is not found in God's word. And you have no right to do that. It's binding their conscience to follow your rules, your applications, or my rules, my applications, instead of God's word, because Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. Not me, not you, not a parent, not a pastor, not your favorite author or podcast or YouTube preacher. None of them, none of us, are Lord of your conscience. Christ alone is Lord of your conscience. Do you see the difference between flee immorality and Christians must throw away their smartphones? Do you see the difference? This is where I want heads to nod. <laughs> you do. Do you see a difference between adorn yourself with modesty, 1 Timothy 2? Do you see the difference between that and Christian women must wear skirts that fall one inch below the kneecap? Do you see the difference? There's a big difference. Command versus application. Do you see the difference between you shall teach the word of the Lord diligently to your children and Christians must homeschool? Because there is a difference between that command and the application of that command. Anytime, anytime I hear Christians must fill in the blank, a red flag goes off in my mind because there are a limited number of statements that should finish that thought. A Christian must trust in Jesus. A Christian must live by God's word. A Christian must repent of their sins. A Christian must throw away their smartphone or wear a dress that meets this standard or must follow these type of principles and only homeschool their children. The Bible does not teach that. That is a mistaking of applications for commands, binding the conscience of other believers and dishonoring Christ. I think we throw around our applications and opinions far too easily without proper respect and submission to God and his word. May the Holy Spirit show us where, show me where this is the case and grant me, you, us, grant us repentance. It can be easy to think this only applies to certain habits or practices, that conscience issues only has to do with like the things that we do or don't do in our lives. But I'm convinced it also applies to theological and doctrinal differences as well. And the reason that I say that is because when we are convinced in our consciences that something is wrong and therefore sinful, that is intensely and unavoidably theological or doctrinal. That which relates to sin or not sin, pleasing to God and not pleasing to God, can we really say that that has nothing to do with our doctrine? Right? We can't just divide up our lives like that. They are, they are a unity of those things. And let's look at some passages to try to see some examples of this. Please open your Bibles and follow along with me on these passages. First is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. God forbid that you think this is just my own ideas or that I think that they're just my own ideas and not principles that are found in God's word. My own applications and not the principles. See, it applies. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, specifically verses 4 through 7. I am jumping right into the middle of a book in an argument, but uh, it's what it's saying. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. 
and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. For the weak believers, Paul's term, for the weak believers that Paul is talking about here, this is no matter of mere cultural preference. They are seeking to avoid idolatry for the glory of God. Are you going to say that that's not a doctrinal theological issue? That's intensely theological. How can, how can we say that that's not? Avoiding idolatry is just a matter of cultural preference? Absolutely not. There's a clear principle of scripture in those type of things from the beginning. But the weak think that something is idolatry that isn't idolatry. That they think it is so it's sin for them. Their consciences are weak. We need to define these terms for sure. Strong and weak. When Paul talks about strong and weak, and not just in this passage, but in a number of the passages that talk about conscience, we need to start off by knowing that this is not, definitely not a matter of strong equals believer and weak equals unbeliever. That is not at all what this passage is talking about. Matter of fact, it's not really addressing anything aspects of unbelievers as well. They play in a little bit, but it's just not Paul's concern because he's writing to a church, church that is made up of believers. It's also not as simple as, and boy, do we want this to be the case. It's not as simple as strong equals mature believer and weak equals immature believer. It'd be really easy to push ourselves into those categories, but it's not true. So strong doesn't mean believer, weak, unbeliever. Strong doesn't mean mature believer, and weak means immature believer. My best attempts at this definition. What is Paul talking about when he says someone is, is strong, a strong brother, a strong sister? This is a believer with a correct conscience on an issue. And by correct, it means it's biblically informed. Right? They believe what God says about an issue, and therefore they know that they can proceed without sin, and they're right. So a believer with a correct, that is, biblically informed conscience on a particular issue. That's strong. So what is weak? Weak, a weak brother or sister, is a believer with an incorrect conscience on an issue, and by incorrect, biblically misinformed. Maybe that's by not having looked it up, by misunderstanding what a passage is requiring. A believer with an incorrect conscience on an issue. They, remember the triangles, right? They have a rule that is binding them that they need to follow, but it doesn't fall under the rules of what God would actually follow. It's not an application that's actually necessary based off of the commands of God's word. So they're incorrect, which means that they're in need of training or adjustment, although that's not Paul's primary concern, neither is it mine. We talked, that whole list, and it said, I hope I riled you up on aspects of that list, because I meant to rile you up on aspects of that list. I read that list to Leanne and some of the girls this morning, and they were just kind of like, oh, you're going you're gonna to answer all those questions today? And I was like, actually, I don't intend to answer any of those questions today. 
because it's not as important to me to answer any of these questions as just recognizing that there are going to be differences that we need to understand amongst believers and then figure out how do we live together. How do we disagree is better than finding an even ground and never disagreeing. A weak believer, one with an incorrect, biblically misinformed conscience on a particular issue. In this case, the issue was food or meat that had been offered to idols. They buy it from a market. It had been sacrificed to an idol. So some said, I can't eat that. That's idolatry. And others were like, it's just meat. It's nothing to do with idolatry. There's no God but one anyway. So who did this meat really come from? God. Not Diana, not Zeus, not whoever else, but God, one God. And they're right. All things come from him and through him and glorifying to him. But that's not that idolatry isn't a big deal. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul picks up aspects of this again, but it's a little bit of a different scenario. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's, he's using reference points from the Lord's table. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same, of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. That's kind of like, Am I disagreeing with 1 Corinthians 8? Which it wasn't 8. Am I disagreeing with what I earlier said? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's not contradicting what he said in chapter 8. Instead, he's explaining that in idol worship ceremonies, there is sinful demonic activity going on. So to go to a feast given in celebration of an idol, he says, is like demonic communion. Can you go to demonic communion and then come to the Lord's communion? Like, is that fitting? Worship idols and then come and worship Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. That is not a conscience issue. Strong, weak doesn't apply. Idol worship is sinful. Whether these Christians felt that they were so strong that it didn't matter to them or not, it's like you can't just go to this festival where idolatry is rampant and not be engaged in idolatry. That doesn't apply to the meat that might be leftovers from that. A Christian should have no part in those idle things. So do you see, like, that same principle, some applications are like, you know what, that's not necessary. But some applications are like, you know what, that is necessary. Another important text is Romans chapter 14. Please turn there. Romans chapter 14, verse, first, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I still hear pages turning. I had it bookmarked, so I was able to get there faster than some of you. I also knew where I was going next. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then down into verse 5, Romans 14, 5 and 6, just a few verses down. One person esteems one day as better than another. 
while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Do you see the common thread of those different things that are happening, right? Not, none of them want to be engaged in idolatry. All of them want to and do give thanks and honor to the Lord in the things that they participate in, but they're participating in different things. Right? They both have that same goal of like, I want to please and honor the Lord. So one eats a steak that he got from the market that had been sacrificed to an idol and does so and gives thanks to God for it, genuinely. And the other's like, I cannot be a part of that. I'm only going to eat vegetables. This scenario is a little bit different than Corinth, but he uses the same analogy. It's like, you know what? These laws that I've lived under, because there is a definite Jewish-Gentile feel throughout the book of Romans as Paul is comparing aspects of this. And so a Gentile Christian's like, I never lived under any law. Paul said, I don't need to live in under any law of this now. I'm just going to eat whatever I'm going to eat, right? Beef, pork, ham, shellfish, whatever. Praise God for all of them. Bacon, right? Yeah. But others are just kind of like, you know what? I grew up trying to please God. I'm still pleasing God as a follower of Jesus. I can't eat those things that I used to not eat. I want to live a life of cleanliness that's, imp- that's pleasing to God. And I want to do that to honor God. So they don't eat. They only eat vegetables. They do it to the glory of God. Great. And others, like, I don't have to eat only vegetables. I can eat meat to the glory of God. Great. Both are doing it to the glory of God. Some, like, you know, I need to maintain these festivals. Our people have been doing this for millennia, right? It was honoring to God then, it's honoring to God now. I've got to maintain these different things. And others are kind of like, I don't have any calendar like that. I don't need to follow these, these holy days. What does that matter? I'm just going to live every day to the glory of God. You're only going to glorify God certain days? Then you start lobbing bombs back and forth. Oh, you only want to honor God on certain holy days? Well, I think every day is holy because that's what we do. And Paul's like, no, honoring God by not having special days, honoring God by having special days, okay. They're both doing it to the glory of God. Here's a likely explanation of what's going on here in Rome, and I, I outlined this a little bit. The weak, influenced by a Jewish tradition of asceticism based on the Torah or the law, or Jewish Christians in Rome convinced that the Torah was still authoritative for Christians. They claimed that a sincere Christian should avoid meat and wine, should observe the Sabbath and Jewish holy days. They were saying only by following such practices could a Christian avoid ritual contamination and please God. So that's the scenario of Jewish believers. And the Gentile believers are like, man, none of that stuff has ever applied to me. And does it need to now? And they said, no. And you know what? They were right. They didn't have to only eat vegetables. They didn't have to observe those days. Right? That was something that had passed with the coming of Christ in the new covenant. It wasn't necessary anymore. The strong had a correct, biblically informed conscience. The weak had an incorrect, not sinful, incorrect, biblically misinformed conscience. They failed to see how the coming of Christ had changed things for them. Those are doctrinal issues. You see that? There are examples from church history as well. Doctrinal issues being held tightly with a clear conscience. Martin Luther refused to recant his teachings that questioned the authority and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. 
We all know the quote, we have to hear it at least once yearly or we can't say that we're reformed in any sense. He famously said his conscience was held captive by the word of God and to go against his conscience would be neither right nor safe. This wasn't about whether he could eat sausage or whether he could drink beer. He was German. Did both a lot. No, it was a matter of kind of like, do I have to submit to the authority of the Pope and to councils and those type of things? If they disagree with God's word, where's the authority structure? And he said, it just just has to be this. Then he goes further with those type of things, right? But that was a conscience issue for him. I believe this to be true, and that's wedded with my conscience, right? This is an umbrella that we see falling under more than just what can I wear, what can I watch, what can I eat, what can I drink? That's what I want to try to get across into these things. Also during the Reformation, William Tyndale gave his life to translate the Bible into English for the common people. And I mean that literally, for he was martyred for doing so. You want to tell me that he wasn't convinced in his soul and his conscience as to what was right? That he was willing to flee from authorities? And then he was tricked and he was martyred for that. He gave his life for those type of things. That was a conscience issue for him. This is worth giving my life for. Later in the English Reformation, there was a resurgence of Roman Catholic power. There's sort of a, a swing back and forth in England that didn't happen in a lot of other places. But during that resurgence, so like Reformation sort of starts and a new queen comes up, Roman Catholic rules the land again, but you have all of these different kind of former priests who became pastors of reformed congregations and continued to teach justification by faith alone against Roman Catholic doctrine in the midst of these things. This resurgence of Roman Catholic power led to the arrests of many believers, clergy, pastors, and laity, men and women. One woman I, I heard about executed because she refused to pray to Mary for deliverance during childbirth. <laughs> She's in labor. Birth's not going well. The midwife says, pray to the Holy Mother for deliverance. And this, <laughs> in between contractions, it's kind of like, that's idolatry. Like, Wow. That midwife turns her into the local authorities. She's robbed of her child, and I think she was drowned in the river because she refused to submit to Roman Catholic teaching. Should that have been what happened in the law of land? No. But it was the law of land, and her conscience said, no, I will not even just say, Mary, help me to just get along because it's sin, and it's idolatry, and only Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped. Do you know, among many other pastors, um, known and unknown, that were drowned or burned at the stake in the English, that, that English Reformation, do you know what the issue was? Like the center thing, that if they had recanted on this, their lives would have been spared. It was the bodily presence of Christ at the table. I wonder if some of us even have a clear idea as to what that is. Right, that the, the bread represents, points us to the body of Christ. The blood points us to that, but there's no bodily presence of Christ at the table. They were burned at the stake for refusing to follow Roman Catholic teaching on those type of things. And I believe, not that they weren't all scared, but they all died with a clear conscience, knowing that they were doing so for the worship of Christ. Do you want to tell me that conscience issues, that theology doesn't fall under that? 
Others were killed both by Roman Catholics and other Protestant leaders because they rejected infant baptism for believer's baptism. It's guilty parties all around. But people pursuing the liberty of a clean conscience submitted to God's word. What's the point of all these things? It's this, both practical issues and theological doctrinal issues can fall under the umbrella of conscience. Those things that we are convinced individually, that we are convinced are right and wrong. And our conscience is not inspired and our conscience is not permanent. You can be convinced of one thing. I certainly have been convinced of something that's honoring to God and then come, come to a completely different conclusion. And then be convinced of something else. Our consciences aren't permanent and they are personal. We all come to different conclusions about some of those types of things. Practical issues and theological doctrinal issues can fall under the umbrella of conscience. Therefore, since our consciences are not the voice of God, we must seek to train our minds and our consciences as to what God's word really and truly says and requires us to believe, striving for the goal that Paul says in Romans 14, Verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Whose mind? My mind. And you in your mind. And you in your mind. Not me convinced in your mind or you convinced in my mind. Each fully convinced in doctrine and in practice in our own minds that we can have that type of a clear conscience before the Lord. And while we do that, we also need to recognize the possibility of theological, doctrinal differences in convictions among Christians. And what do we do with those type of things? If Robbie and I disagree, Robbie could be right and I could be wrong. Or, less likely, I could be right and Robbie could be wrong. Or, we could both be wrong. But we can't disagree and both be right in our interpretations. Does that make Robbie sinful or me sinful in that? No. See, our consciences only have those two categories, right? Right, and that's what's honoring God. Wrong, and that which is sinful. So if he disagrees with what my conscience says, I immediately go to wrong, sinful, but that's wrong. <laughs> that's not what those categories require, and it's not how we should live. We can't disagree and both be right in our interpretations. God's word doesn't contradict itself. It can't have two different meanings in the same place at the same time. But regardless of which one of us is right or wrong, Robbie and I can both be convinced in our own consciences and should be and should live and act according to what our consciences say is right or wrong, even while we question it, even while we train it and seek to adjust it if necessary. How we proceed forward from those doctrinal differences, those things matter. How we disagree matters. Some doctrinal differences can coexist in a faithful church seeking to follow Jesus Christ. Some doctrinal differences cannot. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of gospel matters as being of first importance. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ 
died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The death and burial and resurrection of our promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, is of utmost doctrinal importance. This is where you say amen. <laughs> we'll try that one again. It's okay. You, you listen quietly most of the time. It's all right. The death, burial, and resurrection of our promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, is of utmost doctrinal importance. Thank you. Not everything is of first importance, though. And we do a disservice to primary first-level doctrines when we overinflate the importance of second-level or third-level doctrines. And boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could just have a list of everything that we all agree on as to what's first-level, what's second-level, and what's third-level uh, Christians in the United States and England tried to do that in the early 20th century. They said, this is what's important. This is what's first priority. This is what's fundamental to the faith. Do you know that's actually where that term, where fundamentalism came from, from trying to do this? What's first level? And then the more you think about it, just like, oh, well, these things, well, I'm not sure that that's first. Maybe that's second. What about this? What about this? It's like every generation has different battles that it has to face on those type of things. There's never an exhaustive list. Isn't that interesting that we can even disagree sometimes on what we find as of first importance? And there's certain things I'm just, I'm just not going to budge on. Right, we try to outline those and just those in our member affirmation of faith. Jesus is not eternal God. I'm just not going to budge. Like you say that, it's like, well, then you're, you're talking about and worshiping someone else and we are not on the same page. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe in the true biblical Jesus. If he's less than the eternal God, then it's not who we're talking about. We're not worshiping the same person. We have to hold that tightly. We are not going to budge on that. It's not a conscience issue. And they could hold it with a clear conscience, and they do, and they are wrong. Not because I say so, but because the Bible says so. Bodily resurrection? Well, didn't really die. Yeah, he did. That's of first importance. Now, didn't really, didn't really rise. Yes, he did. That's of first importance. A number of things that we could talk through aspects of that. But what about the difference between some of those things? Like the deity of Christ and the timing of the return of Christ are not of equal doctrinal importance. Study, believe, be convinced. But if you think that that's the same level, you're wrong. The sufficiency of the atonement, that you don't have to do anything you believe and receive what Christ did on the cross, that it was enough to cover your sins, the sufficiency of the atonement and the extent of the atonement are not of equal doctrinal significance. And I believe in limited atonement. Christ's intention was only to die for his people. So with God's plan, his accomplishment, the Holy Spirit's application, that is not as significant as that Christ died for all of our sins, one sacrifice. Those are not on the same plane. Justification by faith apart from the works of the Mosaic law or any other works and the believer's ongoing obligation to keep parts of the Mosaic law are not of equal importance. One is justification, one's a question of sanctification. Not the same importance. The sufficiency and authority of Scripture and which Bible translation you read are not of equal doctrinal importance. And that was an issue for me. That was something I was very convinced on people that I'd listened to. It didn't come from my mom and dad. God bless them. 
<laughs> I remember it's like, I, I know uh, their philosophy. Mom's not here today, but you can ask her or you can ask dad. It's kind of like, really, I don't care what translation you read. I'm thrilled to read in the Bible, <laughs> right? When I listen to certain teachers, certain uh, preachers, they're just kind of like, well, the King James, that's the one. And I just heard that over and over, respected them, wanted to be accepted by them, and directed my conscience into, you know what, it's, it's really King James is best, better, started flirting with only. Boy, that became a doctrinal conscience issue for me. You wouldn't tell me that that's just a matter of practice? Absolutely not. That was a matter of doctrine, a matter of doctrine that I was wrong on. And thank God for a faithful pastor who dealt with an obnoxious college student and asked me, I'll never forget, and I thank God for, for Mark Markham was his name. I just thank God for him. It's just like, Peter, why is this so important to you? It's just like, why is it so important to me? And there was all this fear of man and all this stuff that was just wound into this conscience issue where I was just tweaked up on those type of things. Thank God he delivered me from that. Right, to, to properly, biblically, and theologically inform my conscience that the King James is not the only translation of God's word that's authorized for people in the English language. If you have, if you have a problem with that, I don't want to mock that. That's a, that's a deep issue for me, something that I've worked through, and I thank God for that. I would love to sit down and talk to you about that. And I'm not the only one, but I, I, I can. Uh, it's kind of like, well, you don't throw on a whole lot of stuff. Like, I do actually have a, a minor New Testament Greek, um, and then a, like probably a dozen or two dozen credit hours in Greek and Hebrew from seminary. So it's kind of like, well, maybe you don't really know about translation. Like, I'm just going to say I, I do. I'm not a professional, but I know how much I don't know, but I know more than a lot of people. I just, it, it's just, I've got the credit hours to prove it. I'd love to talk to, about, talk to you about those type of things. That's a big issue to a lot of people. It's a conscience issue. Consciences that are trained in that which is not correct, that the King James is the only translation that anyone in the world's allowed to read, and those who recognize, like the King James translators did, that the meanest translation contains, nay, is the word of God. It's in the preface of the King James translators. They did know what they were talking about. They knew they weren't inspired. The sufficiency and authority of Scripture and which Bible translation you read are not of equal doctrinal importance. And furthermore, just as, as it is not right for us to force other believers to agree with us on all practical conscience applications, throw away your smartphone, neither is it right for us to force other believers to agree with us on all doctrinal conscience convictions. We can and must recognize the reality of deeply held differences among Christians. These differences are not, hear this, these, doc, these differences, even in doctrinal matters, things that we hold deeply, not only are they unavoidable, but we should not try to avoid them because they are part of God's plan for his glory and our good in his church globally and right here at Risen King. It is not better for us to all agree. It's not God's plan. Therefore, it's not for his highest glory. Welcome one another for the glory of God. That's what he says in, in Romans 15. So how should I relate to fellow Christians? Christians what, what was that word? Christians and consciences. How should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? There are two dangers that Paul commands us to avoid. Despising those who are weaker than you 
or hold to a belief that could be considered more conservative or stricter than you, looking down on them like, oh, they still, right? Having gone through a journey of that shift, not just on translations, but translations was a big one for me. Having gone through that shift, right, the sinful tendency of a believer who comes convinced of a different position would be to look down and despise those who still think that that's true. Ugh, they still read. They still think that the King James is better than everything else. That's despising those who hold to a belief that is somehow stricter than you. Paul says, don't do that. Don't look down. Don't despise them. Don't despise the one who will only eat vegetables just because you know that you can eat meat. Don't look down on them for that. And the we, yeah, well, it's funny. Nobody thinks that they're weak. We all think that we're strong and right. There's another danger, though. The other danger is what I'll just call condemning or passing judgment, to use the terminology that he says here. And you can find this over and over. The words welcome, despise, and pass judgment. You mark that. I, I, I train my conscience. I have, that, I have those words marked in my Bible, like permanently, with like a little pen marker. If you've been here, you know that's a big deal. Never mind. We could despise those or we can pass judgment, condemn those who are stronger than you or hold to a belief that could be considered less conservative or looser than you. So the meat eaters are like, ugh, vegetable eaters. And the vegetable eaters are like, ugh, those sinful meat eaters. Despising, oh, how silly. Oh, how sinful. Right, that's what the attitudes are of despising or passing judgment. Here's the thing, guys. Each of us are most likely guilty of both despising and condemning on a smattering of issues in relationship to different people. And it's not just, again, strong as mature and weak as immature. That's not true. That's not how it works. And also, you and I, like, we really do. I, I kind of said it tongue-in-cheek, tongue but it's not. Like, we all think that we're strong and right and that everybody else is weak or wrong. Like, that's just default, but it's, it, that, that's not true. It's funny, I chose my list of things. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm very convinced of these things and probably say I believe I'm strong on all of them. But the things, there are other things that I didn't put on the list because I wouldn't think of them because I don't think it's a matter of strong and weak. I think it's right or wrong. Like we're all just sort of blind to aspects of that. Like you don't look at somebody like, oh, I'm weaker than them. You look at that and be like, they're sinning. But that's not what you're supposed to do. Needs to be more conversation. There needs to be more that happens with those type of things. So we all are stronger or weaker than other believers on a variety of issues. That's the reality of life that we live. But for all of us, on every issue, there is a third option. There's a middle path. There's the gospel way of interacting with other believers, which is welcome one another. Don't despise, don't condemn, welcome. Not tolerate, Welcome, receive, love, live, serve, worship joyfully alongside of everybody that's here. And I call this the gospel way because Paul just soaks it in gospel truth. You have Romans 14, go back there if you aren't. I think I had you in 1 Corinthians or whatever, but open back up to 14. I'm gonna throw some references and read them quickly. You can find these things yourself, but it's just, it's amazing 
what we want to make gospel issues and what Paul makes a gospel issue. So where do we see welcoming and how is it a gospel path? Romans 14, 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Here it is. For God has welcomed him. Despising and condemning are not welcoming. Welcome. Why? Because God did gospel. Romans 14, verses 6 to 9. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Here it is. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So eating meat, eating vegetables, having special days, not having special days, whatever the drinking wine is or not, whatever the other issue is, right? It's just like all of that exists so that Jesus can be Lord over us. For this end, the welcoming, he died and rose again so that we could welcome each other. Gospel issue, gospel way, welcome. Verse 15 of chapter 14. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, this is a strong, not deferring to the weak. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Think about the death of Christ in your interaction with other believers. Then into chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. We, have, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then we already talked about this at the beginning of this series, Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Despise as much as Christ despises. Condemn as much as Christ condemns. Welcome as much as Christ welcomes. How has he treated you? Go and do likewise. Are we lords in the church that others must serve and live according to our standards and convictions and opinions? In the final analysis, do we answer to each other? The world says, don't judge. That is, don't compare my behavior to any standard apart from my feelings or desires. Clearly not biblical. But we can and often do overreact to that wrong thinking by saying, do judge. That is, condemn as sinfully wrong those who do not agree with me or with my camp or my tribe or my group. Biblical maturity means growing in discernment, recognizing good and evil, and growing in humility recognizing that God's will and God's word are the standard, not my conscience, and that my conscience could be wrong. God chose to save you and every other believer. Christ died for you and for every other believer. The Holy Spirit has been and is sanctifying you and every other believer. And the same gracious welcome that you have received from Christ 
has been extended to other believers and you must extend it to other believers. So how should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? We've got to start by understanding our different consciences, continue by trusting the consciences of other believers, deferring to the conscience of weaker believers, and learning to charitably disagree with other believers. In preparation for that, I have a few questions to conclude with, questions that I don't want to meditate on either because I know that I'll uh, find myself convicted, but that's what we do. What is your posture toward your fellow believers here at Risen King Church? You could look around or think about looking around. You see somebody, do you say, I condemn them for not holding rules that I do? Or do you say, well, I look down on them for holding rules that I don't? Or do you say, you know what, I welcome them despite our differences? Think about that this week. And a few other questions. Do you want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Not are you doing it perfectly. You're not. But do you want to? I think you do. I don't see why you'd be here. An hour plus sermon? If you didn't. Not that sermon listening is the same as pleasing God, but I don't understand why you would be here if you didn't want to try to please God. So I think that you do. I think that's the fruit of the Spirit that's in you. Do you have a default assumption that your brothers and sisters are also trying to please the Lord? Not that they're doing it perfectly. But do you assume the best of yourself and the worst of others? Or do you assume that like you're trying to please the Lord and struggling to do so, that everybody else here is also trying to please the Lord, not doing it perfectly? Do you have an unwavering confidence that the God who has justified you is also sanctifying you? Do you know that that's true? Do you believe that? Do you have the same confidence regarding God's work in your brothers and sisters? That the God who justified them is also sanctifying them? May God help us to believe Philippians 1.6 for ourselves and for each other. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Believe that for you and believe that for every other member of this body. And maybe the Lord will work so that we'll welcome one another for the glory of God. Father, give us hearts that do want to glorify you. Give us humility, repentance, wisdom. But give us the heart of Christ. Thank you that you have welcomed us. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, as the song says. Thank you. Amen.